I've shared the page we're on if anyone wants to watch, uh, and I'll go ahead and uh, kick us off a little bit here. Uh, Hello, and thank all of you for coming to the ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus here at the Delusion Lottery Quarantine Collective, uh, the DGQC. Uh, as always, if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, you can at the and GQC. Uh, if you like what we're doing, jump onto Patreon, toss us a buck, five, whatever it is. Uh, every dollar goes to balancing us out. It's DGQC on Patreon. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing our reading of uh, 3.4, Psychoanalysis, uh, and uh, ethnology uh, as we continue through the discussion of Oedipus as a limit uh, where we left off uh, last week moving through the way that the matriarchy uh, how Oedipus works within society cultural issues how Marx was bringing all of these things in how universal history starts to be built and how psychoanalysis uh, can utilize this and playing through all of it I'm trying not to jump too much ahead it's a Tough one, uh, to say the least, but there you go. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit back. I'm going to go two sentences back because it will help uh, continue uh, the rest of the reading, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and dive into it. I'm going to go two sentences back and then go in. Uh, and speaking of Oedipus, it is universal in that sense. Thus, it is indeed within capitalist society that the critique of Oedipus must always resume its point of departure and find again its point of arrival. And continue. Oedipus is a limit. But limit has many different meanings, since it can be at the beginning as an inaugural event in the role of a matrix, or in the middle as a structural function ensuring the mediation of personages and the ground of their relations, or at the end as an eschatological determination. Now, we have seen that it is only in this last sense that the Oedipus is a limit. This is also the case for desiring production, but in fact this last sense itself can be understood in many different ways. In the first place, desiring production is situated at the limits of social production, the decoded flows, at the limits of the codes and the territorialities, the body without organs at the limits of the socius, we shall speak of an absolute limit every time the schizo flows pass through the wall, scramble all the codes, and deterritorialize the socius. The body without organs is the deterritorialized socius, the wilderness where the decoded flows run free, the end of the world, the apocalypse. Secondly, however, the relative limit is no more nor less than the capitalist social formation, because the latter engineers, machine, and mobilizes flows that are effectively decoded, but does so by substituting <clears throat> for the codes a quantifying axiomatic that is even more oppressive, with the result that capitalism, in conformity with the movement by which it counteracts its own tendency, is continually drawing near the wall, while at the same time pushing the wall further away. Schizophrenia is the absolute limit, but capitalism is the relative limit. Thirdly, there is no social formation that does not foresee or experience a foreboding of the real form in which the limit threatens to arrive and which it wards off with all the strength it can command. Whence the obstinacy with which the formations preceding capitalism encast the merchant and the technician, preventing flows of money and flows of production 
from assuming an autonomy that would destroy their codes. Such is the real limit. That takes us right back into our uh, preliminary discussion on the PWO and uh, its relationship with the deterritorialized associates. It does. And uh, specifically this last little bit, just to restate, because it goes through limits, how limits can be at different places. Uh, but at the end, as an eschatological determination, a, a limit, a determination, a setup that's placing us or or that barrier, that wall that exists, that sits, uh, Oedipus is that limit. It is the determinative uh, representation that does this. The paralogisms basically play inside of this. Um, as he says, only in this last sense. In general, the limit of desiring production as well hits this limit, the role of determination, the role of playing within these representations. And that's where the BWO is. This is where the fun discussion. I know, do we want to? A few more of you are here. It's worth saying. So, JK was asking and talking about the BWO through the different soci. And I said the rather provocative idea that uh, I tend to be uh, uncertain or not really think that the BWO is a thing that really existed in the primitive in the same way that we're talking about it here. Maybe not even the despot. And that because it sits, the BWO sits at this uh, wall, this deterritorialized wall, or this edge of, I don't know, this turbulent section where there is deterritorialization and reterritorialization, which is necessitated by capital, that the BWO didn't really exist prior to capital in the same way. Uh, perhaps overly provocative, and I'm not even sure I necessarily believe it, but I tend to feel that direction. And this I think backs that up. So feel free to jump in. I just figured now that I have webcam and triad and Ken here, I might as well annoy you people for answers too. Yeah, I mean, you're spot on that uh, this point about what Oedipus does as a limit, right, is it limits uh, decoded flows and not the nightmare of the society, if I remember correctly, right? So if the Sodius is, uh, the Sodius, if the Socius is concerned with the codification of flows in that, right? Um, it's interesting then that Oedipus as a limit uh, sort of works to keep out decoded flows or in a sense, perhaps even uh, the body without organs, right? So we've got kind of the, the BWO as the limit of uh, the socius, but now we're also seeing um, a second limit entering, right? And this takes me, I think, of the fifth parallelism here, but now you've also got the limit of Oedipus approaching um, in relation to that problem. So the I don't, I, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Uh, yeah, so the body without organs is not just the individual or, or it, is a, it is a kind of um, an, an overarching, um, you know, solidarity of flows within the, uh, which is the socius? I think. If we're talking about an individual in specifically what Deleuze and Guattari are writing, if we're ever talking about something that is individualized or individuated or an individual, we're way past the body without organs. We, we, we've, we've come into the conjunctive synthesis at that point, once we begin talking about individuals. Well, so for me, we're talking about two different 
sides of things because we're talking about regimes and he's going to be getting into this. They'll be getting to this into the rest of this section. But when we're talking about the regime of the molecular, we're talking about the BWO as being the method that organizes or the machine or the surface in which desiring production is organized on. For the socius, we're talking about the molar, which is the organizing effect or the thing that contains and organizes production or the social machines. So we have desiring machines and social machines as the two sort of steps between the molecular and the molar, the BWO being that for the molecular, the socius being that for the molar, is my understanding of their use of it. And so that's why they use the term of uh, kind of where they uh, collide at their minimum. Um, the, the body without organs at the limits of the socius. It's not that the body without organs is at the limits outside of the so like on the other side of things, but we're talking about the literal limits of like where that hits. Um, this is particularly poignant because since the, I think we've got three types of limits here that um, we're going to have to go into, but to that point too, um, so we see them establishing not only this point about um, Oedipus and the BWO as uh, limits for the socius, right, um, and that relationship, but this is kind of an interesting move, and it sort of sounds like uh, the, now they're talking about the fourth paralogism and displacement, because when I think of psychoanalysis, I think of uh, working through things, right? That's kind of one of the big developments um, in, in their methodology as far as like a practice goes. And Deleuze and Guardi will take that up in terms of the breakthrough and breakdown during chapter four, right? But right here at the absolute limit that I think Brooks was just uh, pointing at, there's this point about the breakthrough, right? Um, we shall speak of an absolute limit every time the schizo flows pass through the wall, scramble all the codes, and deterritorialize the socius. The body without organs is the deterritorialized socius. The wilderness where the decoded flows run free, the end of the world, the apocalypse. Uh, very cute, but um, there's a very important point there too, because later on in chapter four, that's going to be um, this discussion of what it looks like to do the breakthrough, especially in terms of the, the body without organs, is going to be a major part of the praxis, as far as um, also establishing a limit into, I think they call it the submolecular. It's interesting that they use apocalypse here as wording. Um, at least um, in, in a very etymological context, um, um, because nowadays we, we associate uh, apocalypse with something that is uh, totally devastating and just a form of destruction. And yeah, this, this connotation is implied here. Uh, with it, but also it is, uh, at least for me, a reference to um, this this plane of imminence that is so essential for Deleuze and his, the movement of the pure difference, because the apocalypse is the the final unveiling of of truth, so to speak, the 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 last uh, veil that that falls or is unravelled, and uh, um, is revealing uh, this this absolute revelation, so to speak. Um, so the curtain falls, and and every 
structure in the sense um, uh, of the socius is destroyed and just this this pure um, flux of of uh, forces, which is the body without organs, is revealed. Or maybe I just read too much Heidegger lately. <laughs> no, I think I mean we're talking about, when we talk about the three limits. The first one is essentially the purely uncoded desire, and I think they've said multiple times in one way or another that uh, society could not survive a true desire or an uncoded desire or uncoded flow. That it that that's kind of uh, a thing they've fallen back on a few times, and so this place on the other side of you know whatever territorialization there is, this place where everything is a purely detoratorialized socius, where decoded flows run free, the end of the world, the apocalypse, is that sort of, I don't know, a permanent revolution, I think would be something Holland would probably call it, um, or they, they kind of refer to it a little bit as that uh, a little bit later, but I think you're spot on with how you're talking about it. And then the, the second one that they're talking about, the, the one step internally, we pulled, pulled a little bit more back, the secondly, the relative limit is no more or less than the capitalist formation because the capitalist formation engineers and mobilizes flows that are decoded, but it does this by substituting for the quote codes a compatible axiomatic, a quantifying axiomatic, a, a rule around these things that is actually more oppressive than the coding itself. Uh, that's the, the essence of essentially how capitalism works. The result that, as it says, in conform capitalism, in conformity with the movement by which it counteracts its own tendency, always heads towards the wall, the wall of uh, this absolute limit where everything is fully deterritorialized, but is always also pushing the wall further away with the axiomatic. So it's this uh, with one hand deterritorializing, with the other hand re-territorializing. I, I refer to it as kind of a the whitewater rapids or, a, you know, the mass sort of flux point of the entire thing. It's at that point constantly moving it. And that's the second thing, because I know I Bostgard asked, uh, Rimka asked uh, just to sort of talk through that. And then you have the third, uh, where the social formations that exist themselves um, are able to understand their place within that socius. Like again, it. A social formation is not the social. Socius is the entire thing that organizes, but the uh, social formations um, are aware of this limit that's constantly threatening sort of to be around the corner and are constantly pushing that away. Whence the obstinacy with which the formations preceding capitalism and cast the merchant and the technician preventing flows of money and flows of production from assuming an autonomy that would destroy their codes. Uh, basically, the desire for social formations to continue the repression of the coding system in order to prevent the pure unbridled sort of nature of capital that doesn't code in the same way but utilizes axiomatics which is even more oppressive but also terrifying because everything's decoded which is that far limit man i hope everything i said there wasn't just a load of shit that's a lot of words I mean, yeah, the absolute limit, you almost would say it's a point about good sense, right? Because this is, um, to your point, right? They're talking about how social formations anticipate their own um, passing away. Well, I guess I should say passing away should um, should flows in that actually gain an autonomy by 
following correctly. Rimka asks, are there three limits, like three concentric circles of borders? Uh, it's tough to think of these things as concentric circles because that denotes that there are lines. It's not so much that. Uh, think of the BWO as uh, uh, flat whiteness forever. Uh, there's a scene in the Matrix where they're standing right before he calls up everything and it's just this giant white room of neutrality where everything, all the bits can be kind of whatever they need to be at any given time. Uh, this is fuzzy, weird, odd thing to say, but that's kind of that outer limit. Nothing is there. Nothing is coded. It's all decoded. It's, it's a neutrality to it. The BWO isn't like a thing or isn't pushing in a direction. It's this neutrality, a uh, sort of heat death of things almost is, is end, end of the end of the line thing, I guess is how I would describe it. So I'd be hesitant to say it's circles of borders, but it's kind of the BWO and then the real limit, which is the social formations that create such a thing that constantly are coding. And then there's the socius, which has this in capital specifically, but whatever has this sort of edge of where the deterritorialization, reterritorialization happens. But out the other side of that is the schizophrenic, uh, who's completely lost to any semblance of social formation whatsoever. That's the sort of three layers. And I do think it's worth us moving to the next paragraph, which gets into the, the real uh, limit uh, and helps describe it a little bit more. So I'm going to move forward. We'll come back to that. Um, uh, unless anyone has any last things to say. Yeah, just to the point about the circles, it looks like they want to say it's three limits in different contexts. One is an aggregating, one is a matrix, which they'll come back to with things like love, and then the eschatological one, which is the real limit we're talking about now that um, Oedipus does, right? That's the sense Oedipus is a limit. So it's, uh, it's those, I think, those um, contexts that help explain it. So does the schizophrenia represent a kind of uh, a possibility of going, um, going? Uh... Um, for that, we really need, I think it's 4.1 where they go through the breakthrough, but it's going to be kind of a few things, but I think, um, I think it's more about how the BWO is going to fit into making something like that possible, right? Which would be your, I think we call it the absolute limit as opposed to the real limit here, which is why I mentioned the, the fourth paralogism here, right? This is kind of, sounds to make a point about displacement. Well, and I, and I definitely want to make sure we get on audio. Ben's completely right that we are kind of starting to aim at conflating decoding and deterritorialization, and they're not the same thing. Uh, we're, we happen to be talking about them in one of the times where they cross over. Uh, they cross over here in very specifically the outer limit where all the codes are scrambled and the socialist is deterritorialized. This is not a thing that is, they are not the same thing. It's different setups, different things, but it's, uh, so it's, a, it's awkward to talk about, but it's a very, it's a fair point. But I, I want to read the next uh, paragraph and we'll continue because I want to get through this at some point. Um, uh, when such societies are confronted with this real limit, repressed from within, but which returns to them from without, 
they regard this event with melancholy as the sign of their approaching death. For example, the Bohannans describe the TIV economy, which codes three kinds of flows, consumer goods, prestige goods, and women and children. When money supervenes, it can only be coded as an object of prestige, yet merchants use it to lay hold of sectors of consumer goods traditionally held by the women. All the codes vacillate. Doubtless, to begin with money, and to finish with money, is an operation that cannot be expressed in terms of a code. Seeing the trucks that leave loaded with export goods, quote, the TIV elders deplore the situation and know what is happening, but do not know where to place their blame, end quote. A harsh reality. But fourthly, this limit inhibited from the interior was already projected onto a primordial beginning, a mythical matrix, as an imaginary limit. How can this nightmare be imagined? The invasion of the socius by non-coded flows that move like lava? An irrepressible wave of shit, as in the Forb myth, or the intense germinal influx, the this side of incest, as in the Yugurugu myth, which introduces disorder into the world by acting as the representative of desire. Whence, in the fifth and last instance, the importance of the task of displacing the limit, causing it to pass into the interior of the socius, in the middle, beyond, between a beyond of it alliance and a filiative this side of, between a representation of alliance and the representative of filiation, as one attempts to tame the dreaded forces of a river by digging an artificial riverbed, or by diverting it into a thousand shallow little streams. Oedipus is this displaced limit. Yes, Oedipus is universal, but the error lies in having believed in the following alternative. Either Oedipus is the product of the social, repression, psychic, repression system, in which case it is not universal, or it is universal and a position of desire. In reality, it is universal because it is the displacement of the limit that haunts all societies, the displaced represented, that disfigures what all societies dread absolutely as their most profound negative namely, the decoded flows of desire. So a lot of stuff happening in chat. Um, uh, to, mm. I'll, just, I'll just quote Ben. Uh, so Chirac asks, are uh, decoded flows and uh, deterritorialization coupled together? It seems like it, I'll just quote Ben, uh, decoded flows cause deterritorialization and reterritorialization, which cannot be separated except in thought. Body of the earth couldn't be re-territorialized by the despot without being deterritorialized. Uh, yes. So it's when we're talking about decoded flows of desire, we're talking about them being just sort of purely just desire being whatever it is. It ends with this. The, the thing societies are terrified of is desire itself being decoded. It needs to be coded as money, as women, as things to purchase as stuff to do, desire itself is terrifying if we don't do that ultimately, is a lot of what's being talked about here, as I read it. Oh wait, your, your roommate's talking. Jack, anyone, jump in. And this, 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 this aspect is pretty interesting, all this, this passage, because um, they are talking now about this real limit as something that is repressed from within, but which returns fr uh, them from without, returns to them from without. So we have this real limit that is repressed from within. So it is inherently or imminently in every system or in every society. 
uh, always built in or maybe even constitutive uh, for it. And this reminds me a bit of uh, something uh, like the concepts of uh, difference or as uh, Steinweg's metaphysics of nothingness, that there is this uh, what we call substance or the absolute is inherently just nothingness on which we build on. Uh, and so in the next step, we have then this imaginary limit that is something like a replacement of this real limit, like the real, uh, I guess, in, in with a hint to Lacan is something that cannot be symbolically represented or is irreducible in this sense to uh, every form of signification. But we at least try it with some uh, sort of imaginary limit. So with uh, apocalyptic mythology, with catastrophes uh, like, uh, um, like this impressible wave of shit. And... Uh, at last, there is this displaced limit at the heart of every society that it is um, pushed out like like Oedipus. It is uh, this this imaginary limit that is representative for the real limit that is uh, inherent in every society. It's its own death and the uh, destruction of every desiring machine and desiring production. But um, this displaced limit now it becomes something that we can take from our imagination and, and push it out something like a taboo or um, th that we can point at so we uh, have something we can blame when society collapses so because it was this this oedipus it was the fall down of um, all the values we had uh, because we gave into incest for example and uh, that's the universal character for Oedipus, at least that's how I read it here, um, and that this displaced represented um, is, is inherently within every, or as they call it here, uh, that disfigured or disfigures what all societies dread absolutely as their most profound negative, namely the decoded flows of desire, so that they are not merely pointing to something and have this uh, production of uh, some sort of sense of structure to it, uh, of um, the uh, social process, but that this constant moving and, and uh, coding in society uh, is merely a, a dance uh, above the abyss. So, uh, and we try to push this back by uh, um, banishing um, these taboos, like in the form of Oedipus, or am I... Um, reading this falsely. I cannot speak today. <laughs> to pose a question on the back of that, um, since we have a, a Lacanian expert in the room, um, or at least someone who suffered through most of his work, uh, Ken, do you have any thoughts on the imaginary limit and uh, why, why the use of imaginary there? Because it, it seems Lacanian, um, but I can't really say much more about it than that. Uh, I don't know anything about Lacan. Um, the uh, uh, so d it's interesting. So he was talking about apocalypse earlier, and in difference and repetition, he uh, notes burn swagger in talking about the uh, 
saying saying that schizophrenia is like the theater of terror or something and that's this area of the imaginary real that's like um like hellraiser or whatnot with the the cinnabites and stuff like that um so that would be my guess but i think here more specifically there's a specific there's a there if i take this varun quote that i got um it's it, it it's the fact of representation um uh being coupled with some sort of uh symbolic gesture um creating a a, a signified that that does the whole death drive masking thing um so my uh, answer would be it would be something to do with the images or representation. So it would be a stereotype of what would happen if we decoded flows. You would have anarchy in whatever the stereotype of anarchy is, or you would have, you know, um, all these other things that people sort of erect uh, to uh, defend against the prospect of... Um, this real limit and that's that's what the the imagistic world is supposed to do um so we we erect images of of spiders and other things to actually sort of triangulate us from a more terrifying sort of fear um their use of myth there i think this is loki that they're talking about um first the or where is it the forbay myth i'm not positive um oh, uh, to help you out uh specifically where they write but fourthly this limit inhibited from the interior was already projected onto a primordial beginning a mythical matrix as the imaginary limit how can this nightmare be imagined the invasion of the socius by non-coded foes that move like lava an irrepressible wave of shit as in the former myth or the intense germinal influx with this side of incest as in the Yorigu myth which introduces disorder into the world by acting as the representative of desire before they move into the fifth instance. And I'm guessing the mythical matrix is the mother or something like that. Um, and the idea in psychoanalysis is that that's like sort of the the imaginary is the dyadic relationship between the mother um or that's the thing that uh instantiates the ego is is you sort of witness how you're seen as an image and then you seek to be that thing but then you realize that you, the the image of your body is not what uh, is not what's going to satisfy your mother. Then comes the daddy, and, and, and then you imagine what it is about daddy that mother desires that you don't have. And then you get the fouls, right? Um, so that's my best bet, is that the the um, the Matrix bit is like like Gaia or some something like that. You know, germinal flows, some sort of 
um, uh, maternal uh, abyss that you could return to that um, that Nietzsche sort of hints at and thus spoke Zarathustra whenever he's talking about um, whenever he's talking about uh, you know witnessing his most terrible thought or something and he's 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 asking it to come um, and then uh, he it and then it comes and you don't quite know what it is, but it, but he's like, Oh, Oh God. Oh, ha, ha let go, let go. And then it knocks him out for like two weeks or something like that. And I think that's a good example of this real limit, but it's not, you know, incest is just the, the signifier is just the re- repressive representation. Um, it's more about these germinal flows for them, I suppose. Um, but but it's a twofold problem. It's not just the, the signifier incest. It's also like, then you get the displaced represented. Right. And, and that's this, this imaginary thing. That's this, this meaning behind what incest is or whatever. So, um, like we've talked before, um, the whole, uh, you know, the, the signifier of sex is, is given to a child and they have to make something of it. Um, that there's that second move of what sex means that, that, um, that traps desire. Right. And so I think that's, what's going on here, but that's the signifier. And that would be the imaginary, I guess. Yeah. I think to, to, and to move toward maybe something of a, a grounding on this one, it sounds like um, it sounds like what's happening here is with uh, the limit moving internal on that, the way things are being coded, so that you've got this mythical matrix, right? The images that um, are are becoming possible and are being rendered, right? So your point about the abyss becomes something like a womb, right, or something like that. That point about um, uh, this this uh, use of the imaginary, I think, suggests then that uh, with the displacement, so that which has been de- um, displaced is now being imagined. I think um, in terms of the Oedipal, right, with the Oedipal as it's as the limit of the displaced. I mean, I guess um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what exactly. I mean, it's straightforward what they say Oedipus is. Um, but, but finding that place within everything else has been sort of difficult for me. Um, but yeah, for sure. Like, um, because then all of, uh, society or whatever becomes delimited by, or limited by Oedipus. Now, um, your, your father or your boss becomes your father or something like that, or, or the rules, uh, on, on the road somehow represent your father. And then like, like the cake you eat too much of is your mother or something like that. Well, this even sounds like if we were going to be talking about a myth, right. And what myth does part of this point about displacement seems to be that, the imaginary context of the myth is going to be um, hereby through the Oedipal limit, right? 
uh, I mean, it sounds to me like this is basically displacement they're talking about, um, is going to be uh, edipalized, right? So it's going to be an uh, it's going to at least in some way be lying in Oedipal um, imaginary, because that would then, I think, displace the decoded flows, right? Because the, the examples, they're, they're pointing to a, a germinal influx, right? Um, but this side of incest is in the Yorgu uh, myth. Uh, I don't either, but I remember this point about the germinal influx as I think it's the repressing representative. It's the second part of the, the three steps. Um, I don't remember the, the terms of very well, unfortunately, but um, it's the second one in that. So I know where they're, I know what they're pointing at in terms of representation or not. I mean, what's funny is that like this imaginary displaced limit is sort of in Oedipus itself, like. Uh, like the image of incest and then him cutting out his eyes. Right. And that's that limit. It's just an interesting way to say it. The image of incest. I will just say, I'm also having a really good discussion with Ben at the same time. So uh, that's why I've been a little bit of silent. Um, we're going to have a chat about this, Ben. We will discuss this because this is good shit. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not I, saying. I I'm not sure saying that. Or, or hold off. <laughs> I, I'm at no point, Ben, and am I saying that there was no BWO ever, and that this is some new thing. Like that, it's also not what they say. Like that, as a thing, the the methodology of how the unconscious works is not new. This isn't like something that formed later and primitive people had an undeveloped unconscious. This is not the argument that they're making, I believe, or the one I'm making. So we'll we'll get back to it. Um, Anyway, uh, we should get to the fifth. Uh, do you want to jump into that, Jack? Uh, yeah, I mean, I spent last weekend um, flying my eyes out after incest, but I will give it a shot. Um, so whence in the fifth and last instance, the importance of the task of displacing the limit. This is immediately following what Ken and I were discussing in terms of the imaginary, uh, the imaginary limit. Uh, causing it to pass into the interior of the socius, i.e. the limit, which is in the middle between a beyond of alliance and affiliated this side of, between a, represent, a representation of alliance and the representative affiliation. As one attempts to tame the dreaded forces of a river by taking an artificial riverbed or by diverting it into a thousand shallow little streams. Oedipus is this displaced limit. Yes, Oedipus is universal, but the error lies in having believed in the following alternative. Either Oedipus is the product of the social repression, psychic repression system, in which case it is not universal, or it is a universal and a position of desire. In reality, it is universal because it is the displacement of the limit that haunts all societies the displaced represented, but disfigures what all societies dread absolutely as their mo most profound negative, namely the decoded flows of desire. So to kind of kick this off, if we move this into the fifth paralogism, right, 
the uh, basically like a bad ontogenesis of Oedipus, right? Where Oedipus is um, uh, explains itself as point of arrival and departure, right? It um, takes itself as the end, and then it's uh, because it's the end, it's kind of also the beginning, right? Uh, so in that sense, a point about the universe, but, uh, also perhaps totality or maybe even a structure there. So in that sense, what that functions as, it seems to be here, is going to be as a displaced limit. And that might be worth opening up. Um, what do you guys think about the use of displaced limit here? I, I personally like it. I think it's an interesting... A uh, way for us to begin the discussion of how, uh, and we will be getting into this, how anti-production and repression function. And the displaced limit is, I think, a good beginning that starts to point at some of that, especially with some of their later uh, usage of it. Uh, Oedipus being this displaced limit, the idea of, uh, yes, it is universal uh, because it is the displacement of all limit that haunts all societies that we don't ever want to actually get to that limit. And so we find ways to essentially scare ourselves and find reasons to, uh, uh, ways to justify it, I suppose would be a good way to put it. Yeah, I think, I think you're spot on that it's, at least as I'm reading this, it sounds like what they're getting at is that which is decoded is changing, right? And so the displaced limit, um, right, since we're talking about um, not only the, the decoded, but how it's represented, right, through Oedipus, that which is represented is actually changing, right? So the Oedipal limit in its displacement is changing, and one would think that affects what is decoded as well. I wanted to ask, uh, does that mean that um, this idea of uh, Oedipus being universal uh, means that uh, you know all societies that um, rely on this um, you know triangular familial structure, like filio filio piety, you know, is a kind of um, is this kind of limit that um, that societies uh, fear the displacement of. I actually, you're asking. Oh, go ahead, Brooks. No, no, please, because I was going to say. I think actually we're going to be about talking about the next two paragraphs actually in order to answer that because it's the right exact right question to ask I think. But go ahead, Jack. That works for me because I was going to ask if I understood it correctly, but yeah, no. if you want to just push into it, um, I'm cool with that too. I'm going to jump forward. We'll come back, JK. If we don't answer by the end of this, make sure we do um, for sure. But I think the next couple of paragraphs are going to be able to start answering that. Um, so I'll continue. Uh, this is not to say that the universal Oedipal limit is occupied, strategically occupied in all social formations. We must take Cardiner's remark seriously. A Hindu or an Eskimo can dream of Oedipus without, however, being subjected to the complex, without having the complex. For Oedipus to be occupied, a certain number of conditions are indispensable. The field of social production and reproduction must become independent of familial reproduction, that is, independent of the territorial machine that declines alliances and filiations. The detachable fragments of the chain must be converted, by virtue of this independence, 
into a transcendent detached object that crushes their polyvocal character. The detached object, phallus, must perform a kind of folding operation, a kind of application or reduction, a reduction of the social field defined as an aggregate of departure to the familial field, now defined as the aggregate of destination. And it must establish a network of one-to-one -one relations between the two. For Oedipus, to be occupied, it is not enough that it be a limit or a displaced represented in the system of representation. It must migrate to the heart of this system and itself come to occupy the position of the representative of desire. These conditions, inseparable from the paralogisms of the unconscious, are realized in the capitalist formation. Furthermore, they imply certain archaisms borrowed from the imperial barbarian formations. One second, I'm going to sneeze. <coughs> oh my, sorry about that. Uh, the conditions, inseparable from the paralogisms of the unconscious, are realized in the capitalist formation. Furthermore, they imply certain archaisms borrowed from the imperial barbarian formations, in particular, the position of the transcendent object. The capitalist style has been described by D.H. Lawrence, quote, our democratic industrial order of things, whose style is, my dear little lamb, I want to see mommy. Kind of like that, actually. Um, still, like the, still like the little snark that they add in here. Um, it's not so much that Oedipus... Uh, is a thing or that someone can dream about fucking their mom or the the idea of it. it as he says, it's not so much that an, es an Eskimo or a Hindu can dream of Oedipus. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that word anymore. It's not the right word, but the word they use. Um, the society, the way that it operates, uh, Oedipus needs to actually, for it to be occupied, it needs to actually create that displaced limit. It needs to uh, build in the, the repression at a deep level and reorganize things for it to be occupied. The, the handful of things that he, they talk about here that Oedipus does from uh, you know, crushing the voices of multiple family members to ultimately by vocalization between two, um, the reduction of the social field overall, the folding operation, all of these elements uh, that need to happen, that's how we have this thing occupied and how it sort of works in different societies. It's not so much that Oedipus jumps in and now suddenly people want to do X and it's like, oh, they're Oedipalized. It's like, yes, to have the complex, here's the entire thing. And I think it is a fair analysis of our democratic industrial order of things whose style is my dear little lamb, I want to see mommy, which is pretty cute. Um, that's my, it's, I, I felt like this was a direct answer to your question, JK. Does that help at all? Yeah, I'll, I'll tack on to that. It's, um, it's sort of a gear switching thing, right? Uh, the way Oedipus changes positions in the role of those three um, elements of representation, right? And so here in the primitive Oedipus isn't where it doesn't occupy the position it does in capitalism, right? Or more so with the capital socios. Um, the other thing is, I, I think, really critical here is they're working through the five paralogisms, right, to look at how Oedipus plays into that and how the capital associates and relationalist five paralogisms um, 
how Oedipus will function in that society to perform um, that kind of repression or not. I think uh, they're 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 using uh, some some English language games here, and specifically they're 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 using decline as the root of declension. Now, on the one hand, it is evident that the primitive formations do not come close to fulfilling these conditions, precisely because the family, when opened to alliances, is coextensive with and adequate to the social historical field because it animates social reproduction itself, because it mobilizes or causes passage of the detachable fragments without ever converting them into a detached object, no reduction whatever, no application is possible that would answer to the formula three plus one, four corners of the field folded into three like a tablecloth, plus a transcendent term that performs the folding operation. Quote, Speaking, the transcendent term uh, sorry, speaking, dancing, exchanging, and allowing to flow, and even urinating, in the midst of the community of men, quote, as Perrin himself puts it, to express the fluidity of the flows and the primitive codes. At the heart of primitive production, one always finds oneself at four plus n, in the system of ancestors and affines, far from being able to claim that here, that there is no end to Oedipus, one sees that it never manages to begin. One is always brought to a halt well before 3 plus 1, and if there is a primitive Oedipus, it is a neg Oedipus in the sense of neg entropy. Oedipus is indeed a limit or a displaced represented, but precisely in such a way that each member of the group is always on this side of or beyond without ever occupying the position. Cardiner has understood this very well in the formula we cited. It is colonization that causes Oedipus to exist, but in Oedipus, that is taken for what it is, a pure oppression, inasmuch as it assumes that these savages are deprived of the control over their own social production, that they are ripe for being reduced to the only thing they have left, the familial reproduction imposed on them being no less oedipalized by force than it is alcohol, alcoholic, or sickly. I'm going to read the footnote uh, Perrin puts it to express the fluidity of the flows in the primitive codes. Regarding the coextensivity of marriages with the primitive social field, Cijalin's remarks, quote, Marriages are not governed by kinship laws. They obey a dynamic that is infinitely more complex, less rigid, whose invention at each moment utilizes a number of coordinates of another order of importance. Marriages are more apt to be a speculation on the future than on the past. And in any case, these marriages and their speculation derive from what is complex, not from what is elementary, and never from what is rigidly fixed. The reason for this is not by any means that man knows laws only so he may violate them, whence the stupidity of the concept of transgression. Last time we did this reading, this paragraph, we spent an hour on just mentioning. I went back and listened to a little bit, and I'm not sure we made necessarily good headway with it. We ended up doing a review session that was essentially focused almost solely on this paragraph as well. Yeah, Doug was here to explain neg entropy. Uh, uh, Roger uh, came in a little bit late, but was able to do that. This is this is not an easy set, and I'm not even sure I can actually help here. So maybe we want to break it down bit by bit. Um, if we start at the top, right? So what they laid out in terms of the five paralogisms in Oedipus in relation to capital associates, 
right? The primitive formations or the primitive socius doesn't come close to fulfilling those conditions, right? So we don't have Oedipus in the in the last stage of uh, the, the representation, right? And this looks like they're going to explain in this paragraph why that is and how Oedipus does function here. And that the way that society is organized in the primitive, which is uh, the earth socius, uh, where things are done for the earth, their organization doesn't allow it. The, the three plus one, the the plus one is the thing that uh, I think they're really attaching to here. Does anyone have the ability to dive into that? Because again, I'm going to start rambling. Nobody wants that really. Because uh, the three plus one, the four corners of the field folded into three like a tablecloth, plus the transcendent term that performs the folding operation. So before it, I've been getting the hints that they're talking about the primordially repressed, and whenever you guys were saying how before what, what they were talking about had something to do with uh, anti-production, um, that's, that's sort of reminded me of uh, how Freud suggests that this, um, that there's some sort of anti-investment from the pre-conscious uh, in the primordially repressed that keeps it from going up that, that limit. Um, but here, uh, like last time, I guess the one, this three plus one is supposed to be the phallus. And um, it, it does sort of have this folding operation. It's a meaningless signifier. It's a signifier without a signified. And it is always already a repetition. And in that way, it's able to uh, hold together a chain of signification. Um, and there's, there's lots of examples of this. Um, anytime you say something so many times, it's essentially meaningless, but at the same time, it is the very thing that's, that has some sort of purpose of group cohesion. Um, that's, that's sort of this function of the phallus. So, so freedom sort of does that, um, democracy sort of does that in, um, in Blue Velvet, the uh, antagonist in that character, the, the antagonistic character who he says like fuck a million times. Um, that's like Frank. an example. Yeah, Frank. Yeah, he says fuck so many times that, it, that it, it can mean absolutely anything. It's totally meaningless. But at the same time, it's sort of the thing that solidifies his position in his group, sort of speak. Um so I think that's what's going on with this three plus one thing and this folding thing. Um, dancing, exchanging, and allowing to flow and even urinating in the midst of community of men. Yeah, uh, you know, um, like a, a, a lion walks around and urinates and marks his territory, I guess, is that point. I don't know, maybe I could be wrong. Um, but this next part this four plus in i was hoping someone could go into a little bit more before i i don't think they really get into the four plus n until the next chapter so yeah i'm i'm gonna say that this is this is something we may have to put a pin in in order to push forward okay i hope that um, 
for, for me, the three plus one is just Oedipus in this sense, because it is this folding of the plane represented by this fourfoldedness, this, this already uh, expanding plane of four plus n, when they say um, at the heart of primitive production, one always finds oneself at four plus n. So we have this topological plane plus n more uh, dimensions that could be uh, added to this uh, in the system of ancestors um, and affines. But uh, with Oedipus, with the formula of three plus one, we have always this uh, this this um, reduction of this field, and it uh, doesn't even come in this primitive societies to this reduction as they uh, say it in the next sentence. One is always brought to a halt well before three plus one, and if there is a primitive Oedipus, it is neck Oedipus in the sense of neck entropy. So we have here this this structure of Oedipus as this free foldedness, this this trinity of uh, daddy, mommy, me. Um, the father, the mother, and the child, uh, plus the operation that is reducing this this um, plane that is uh, simply fourfolded um, most of the time, plus uh, sufficiently more dimensions. Uh, this is just folded like uh, with this metaphor of the tablecloth that is just folded in that way that is just sufficient to this. Um, um, free foldedness of the Oedipal triangle uh, through this um, operation that is also needed because we don't only have the uh, free elements in this uh, relationship, but we also need the uh, reductive folding that brings um, this social field um, to overlap, um, to, to match this, this schema of Oedipus. Yeah. It, I, I think that, that's probably how I think I grasp it, too, that the, the three plus one is, is a demand that everything becomes either one of those elements. It's always everything being folded in, whereas four plus n, and that's the part that confuses me, is that the n or the one, it, because it's written like an equation almost, it feels like those are, it's, it's not. The, the four plus n is uh, the relations that I have in my sort of immediate family. However, there's a lot of other components to it. The plus in the, the, as they say, the complex network of affines and ancestors that are added to any familial unit I might have is where it starts. And that's why Oedipus doesn't because uh, Oedipus needs to get me to three plus one and just not possible. Uh, neg entropy, neg entropy um, is a, difficult term to grasp here and it's the idea of uh, essentially a an ability to get to normality um, or how to put it um yeah no it's a it's a towards normality towards uh, the push towards that uh, it's a term that's used inside of therapy it's a term that's used inside of mathematics and physics primarily is actually where it came from and it's uh, the difference in entropy between distribution uh, with the same mean and variance is kind of the very short, confusing physics way to do it. But it's a conversation around uh, the distance to normality, the distance to that. That is what neg entropy is. And it's not the easiest 
uh, setup. Um, if you have a system at equilibrium, and then you have the system as it is now, the same system, negentropy is the delta between them. So if there is a primitive Oedipus, it is a neg Oedipus in the sense of neg entropy. The distance, it, Oedipus is a limit or a displaced represented, but in such a way that each member of the group is always on our side or beyond, because it is not, uh, it is not Oedipus, it is a distance to Oedipus, it is a distance to entropy, it is a distance, the delta between where we're at and where we could be. This is the reference they're making there. And so for primitive uh, people who don't have the three plus one or the ability to get there, the neg Oedipus, it's a terrible way to set it up. It's tough without Doug, and I don't remember what Doug said last time, but I, I think I follow you because that seems to jive. So I, 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 don't, I don't know if it's well enough to say anything about the, the correctness of that, but I do think that jives with the point that, because the interesting thing here is, right, right, what does Oedipus exist here? And so they write it as Oedipus, following what you said about Oedipus not being here except as a neg um, Oedipus, right? Uh, if it, it is colonization that causes Oedipus to exist, but an Oedipus that is taken for what it is, a pure oppression. So not a repression, but an oppression, in as much as it assumes that these capitalist savages are deprived of the control over their own social production that they are ripe for being reduced to the only thing they have left, the familial reproduction imposed on them being no less edipalized by force than it is alcoholic or sickly. So to your point about systems changing, right, this is, the, this is a changing of um, uh, the primitive and the capital socius, right, or socii, and the way that we're moving. We're talking about oppression now, yeah. Yeah, and then the stuff Doug was talking about last time, and we got into a larger discussion. There was a there's another writer uh, who brought over the concept of nig entropy into uh, psychology, psychotherapy, and all of that. That I'm probably going to assume that Deleuze is more referencing, or Guattari is more referencing here. But uh, the idea of nig entropy in that again, that if we're talking about the delta or the movement there, we're talking about kind of uh, a, almost free energy, uh, free, uh, that it's able to be utilized uh, kind of without uh, impasse or break. And that's kind of the way that it was originally talked about inside of the psychological community. There's a psychic negentropy uh, that uh, you know, energy can flow freely through into whatever task or thing we choose to put it in. Um, it's a, like being focused or in flow, which is a more recent sort of use of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially energy you can be confident that you have and that will be utilized, which is really interesting. Like this would be a worthwhile dive like super deep. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say a lot of that stuff existed uh, during Deleuze's time, so it's hard to even know what he's referencing, but it's the overall idea of neg entropy. And so neg Oedipus kind of has the same ring to it in my head. I don't want to go, that's a rabbit hole. I know I went down before. I don't want to avoid it this time for sure. I'm going to read the next paragraph. I think uh, like a, a really good 
sorry, a really good way to think about neg entropy, especially as it's been kind of redefined in, uh, is the the uh, order of a closed system versus its surroundings. So think about like uh like like uh like a, a like an old building or like an old castle or whatever where most of it's going to be run down but maybe like part part of the keep will still be in a much better condition because it was kept up for longer than when the castle started to be let go uh so there's like a, a an amount of neg entropy in that a system right because every system uh, in this way has uh the condition to to fall at one point to fall into chaos uh, into some sort of equilibrium in a energetic way but um as far as i understood it um this was coined by by schrodinger in relation to defining life in relation or in contrast to physical systems that tend to this equilibrium in a low energy state uh, a stable state uh, but these negentropic systems like uh, organisms uh, animals plants but also um, uh, to some extent uh, societies but already uh, dissipative structures like crystals etc tend to um, absorb energy uh, in a very vague sense so they uh, build up order and structure um, they take out the energy and uh, of out of their environment and build up more complex forms uh, in contrast to entropy it is uh, um, trying to reduce order to a, a stable uh, plateau of uh, energetic equilibrium i i hate you jack mm. i hate everything about you jack in so many ways i can't even convey the just fury that i no one else knows that that was directed at me as a comment but i know I don't know what you're talking about. You're a bastard. I was bastard. confused if this was just a very gay reference or if it was no. the Star Wars reference. It was yeah. a Star Wars reference because Jack yeah, of just really just hates me a little bit. Um, Damn internet kitties and their references to pop culture. Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm <laughs> now gonna. I'm now gonna just read. <sighs> On the other hand, when the requisite conditions are realized in capitalist society, it should not be thought on that account that Oedipus ceases to be what it is, the simple displaced representative that comes to usurp the place of the representative of desire, snaring the unconscious in the trap of its paralogisms, crushing the whole of desiring production, replacing it with a system of beliefs. Oedipus is never a cause. It depends on a previous social investment of a certain type capable of falling back on family determinations. It will be objected that such a principle is perhaps valid for the adult, but surely not for the child. But in effect, Oedipus begins in the mind of the father, and the beginning is not absolute. It is only constituted starting from the investments of the social historical field that are affected by the father. And if it passes over to the son, this is not by virtue of a familial heredity but by virtue of a much more complex relationship that depends on the communication of the unconscious. With the result that, even in the child, 
what is invested through the familial stimuli is still the social field and a whole system of breaks and extra-familial flows. The, flack, the fact that the father is first in relation to the child can only be understood analytically in terms of another primacy, that of social investments and counter-investments in relation to familial investments. This will be seen later, at the level of an analysis of deliriums, but already, if it appears that Oedipus is an effect, this is because it forms an aggregate of destination, family become microcosm, on which capitalist production and reproduction fall back. The organs and the agents of the latter no longer pass through a coding of flows of alliance and filiation, but through an axiomatic of decoded flows. Consequently, the capitalist formation of sovereignty will need an intimate colonial formation that corresponds to it, to which it will be applied, and without which it would have no hold on the productions of the unconscious. actually don't have a lot to add to this one. I, I really like this because it points directly at one of the challenges they mentioned early on and that I think a lot of people laugh and giggle about. Maybe I do. Um, the idea that uh, Oedipus being determinate uh, within the child, the child's the one who visits it upon the family, that, that it, it's, it's in you at birth or just by nature of sort of how your unconscious works, rather than the way that the social and, fam and, social and uh, network determinations that exist within your growth as a child or as a human uh, aren't the thing that have that imparted on you. Uh, I tend to lean myself that way a little bit, say, so. Um, I don't really have much to add, but I've been like looking into some more value form theory stuff, and I I'm just uh I'm curious about like there there seems to be like sort of a connection between I guess this like uh, social whole as like uh, you know abstract totality in a certain sense like the value uh, abstract labor and like the way this comes to fall back uh, on like production. I guess uh, I I feel like it's has, it's so much more complex than like what they're doing, but like uh, their section specifically on the capitalist machine is uh, not long enough. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm it's a fascinating paragraph how it sort of sets up that for later. Mm. Given these conditions. What is there to say about the relationship between ethnology and psychoanalysis? Must we be content with an uncertain parallelism where each contemplates the other with perplexity, placing in opposition two irreducible sectors of symbolism, a social sector of symbols and a sexual sector that would constitute a kind of universal, private universal, a kind of individual universal, transversals between the two since social symbolism can become a sexual material and sexuality, a ritual of social aggregation. But the problem is too theoretical when posed this way. Practically speaking, the psychoanalyst often claims to explain to the ethnologist the meaning of the symbol. It means phallus, castration, Oedipus. But the ethnologist asks other questions and sincerely asks himself, of what use can psychoanalytic interpretations be to me? Hence the duality is displaced. It is no longer between two sectors, but between two kinds of questions. What does it mean, and what purpose does it serve? Of what use is it not only to the ethnologist, but what purpose does it serve, and how does it work 
in the very formation that makes use of the symbol. Whatever may be the meaning of the thing, it is not certain that the thing serves any useful purpose whatever. It is possible, for example, that Oedipus serves no useful purpose, either for psychoanalysts or for the unconscious. And to what use could the phallus be put, since it is inseparable from the castration that deprives us of its use? Of course, we are told not to confuse the signified with the signifier, but does the signifier take us beyond the question, what does it mean? Is it anything other than this same question, only this time barred? This is still the domain of representation. Read the footnote. Uh, Roger Bestide has systematically developed the theory of two symbolic sectors in sociology, et, sociology and psychoanalysis. I'm going to try the French, sorry. But starting from a viewpoint that is analogous at first, E.R. Leach is led to displace the duality, causing it to pass between the question of meaning and that of use, thereby changing the scope of the problem. See, magical hair, which we'll get into actually at some point. It's a. Go ahead, please. I was say it's kind of neat how they're they're growing out of like so they just made the point about the three plus one versus the four plus n in the sense that um in the primitive socius right you do have an open family at least it's openable right and certain tradings in that so you've got the aunt and the the, the uncle and the sister that um are possible there in ways that they're not with three plus one and so it's interesting to see them pushing that further now, uh, having brought up uh, colonialism you know, and colonization. And now they're moving into this question of the parallel between, um, I guess, say, is it enough to be content with uh, an uncertain parallelism where each contemplates the other with perplexity, place in opposition to irreducible sectors of symbolism? So it's cool to see them pushing that even further now. The true misunderstandings, the misunderstandings between ethnologists, or Hellenists, and psychoanalysis, psychoanalysts, do not come from a faulty knowledge or rec recognition of the unconscious, of sexuality, of the phallic nature of symbolism. In theory, everyone could reach an agreement on this point. Everything is sexual or sex-influenced from one end to the other. Everyone knows this, beginning with the users. Practical misunderstandings come rather from the profound difference between the two sorts of questions. Without always formulating it clearly, the ethnologists and the Hellenists think that a symbol is not denned by what it means, by what it does, and by what is done with it. It always means the phallus or something similar, except that what it means does not tell what purpose it serves. In a word, there is no ethnological interpretation for the simple reason that there is no ethnographic material. There are only uses and functions. On this point, it could be that psychoanalysts have much to learn from ethnologists about the unimportance of what does it mean? When Hellenists place themselves in opposition to the Freudian Oedipus, it should not be thought that they put forward other interpretations to replace the psychoanalytic interpretation. It could be that ethnologists and Hellenists will compel psychoanalysts for their part to make a similar discovery. Namely, that there is no unconscious material either, nor is there a psychoanalytic interpretation, but only uses, analytic uses, of the syntheses of the unconscious 
which do not allow themselves to be defined by an assignment of a signifier any more than by the determination of the signifieds. How it works is the sole question. Schizoanalysis foregoes all interpretation because it foregoes discovering an unconscious material. The unconscious does not mean anything. On the other hand, the unconscious constructs machines, which are machines of desire, whose use and functioning schizoanalysis discovers in their imminent relationship with social machines. The unconscious does not speak, it engineers. It is not expressive or representative, but productive. A symbol is nothing other than a social machine that functions as a desiring machine, a desiring machine that functions within the social machine, an investment of the social machine I desire. Um, I was watching uh, last night Ray Brassier's uh, lecture uh, from the New School on Marx, and um, he was going over Feuerbach's like sort of like alienation of the um, like how it's like this external like how like uh, religion is like this externalization of like our own uh, sort of like uh, cognitive capabilities, our own like consciousness. Um, and it's like in this way that like um, I guess that 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 I, especially like the last part, like um, the investment of the social machine by desire, like these sort of like construction of like a totality, I guess um, that seems to be transcendent, but is like um, really like reverses the relationship of like transcendence and imminence, um, and that it's like uh, produced by you know uh, the the socius, I guess, um, imminently. I, I, I don't know, uh, that just sort of, um, in a sense, maybe that's not the best, uh, or that useful of a comment, but. I kind of like the point about the externalizations. Yeah. I, I don't know Feuerbach, um, in the sense that it, it's almost like taking something external to what's going on and using that to explain what's going on, right? I, I think that's probably, um, I think, I think that's pretty uh, accurate. I think so too. I don't, I don't know enough. I'm, I, I really would love to respond. Is there a way you can link the Brassier lecture so we can, because now I, now I'm dying to have this conversation later. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll look it up uh, right now and I'll put it in the live chat. Thank you so much. This paragraph. Uh, to kind of try to just walk through it quickly so we can maybe move on a little bit, uh, is driving home this idea about how their view of the unconscious, a psychoanalyst, all of these people, how the, how the just actual activities of these different varied experts pushes towards the idea of schizoanalysis, towards this machinic unconscious instead of an unconscious based on symbols uh, or other elements uh, like that. Uh, the the big point that they're making here, and it's one that they will drive home a lot more later, is that the unconscious doesn't mean anything. That these symbols themselves are actual little machines that are producing and are building and are putting stuff together, and it's altogether an investment of social machine by desire. Symbol is nothing other than a social machine that functions as a desiring machine. A desiring machine that functions within the social machine, an investment of the social machine by desire. That last that's the big one that we're going to be carrying forward from here on, especially as we move into despot and then capital. I will. Um, yeah. Uh, 
important part of the like Feuerbach thing is that like we create this alien entity, God, and then we subject ourselves to it as if that this is a transcendent cause. Uh, so it's like in a sense that this doesn't mean anything. I think it's it, if it if that that might be how it sort of relates, I guess too. Yeah, it's 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 trying to eliminate the idea of a transcendent meaning for sure. That uh, that these symbols have this large scale meaning that doesn't matter what culture you're from or anyone. Everyone who has such an image in their head or a symbolism, it's the same exact thing. Uh, that's a lot of what they're getting away from. But especially also the idea that there is a unconscious stage with which the, the symbols dance inside of our heads. Um, definitely taking aim at that. Uh, but we're about to get into a little bit more of that because we're about to get into Guattari. So I'm going to just read the next paragraph uh, to continue this. It's, it's, we're getting into Guattari here. Be ready. It has often been said and demonstrated that an institution cannot be explained by its use any more than an organ can. Biological formations and social formations are not formed in the same way in which they function, nor is there a biological, sociological, linguistic, etc. functionalism at the level of large determinate aggregates. But the same does not hold true in the case of desiring machines as molecular elements. Their use, functioning, production, and formation are one and the same process. And it is this synthesis of desire that, under certain determinate conditions, explains the molar aggregates with their specific use in a biological, social, or linguistic field. This is because the large molar machines presuppose pre-established connections that are not explained by their functioning, since the latter results from them. Only desiring machines produce connections according to which they function, and function by improvising and forming the connections. A molar functionalism is therefore a functionalism that did not go far enough, that did not reach those regions where desire engineers, independently of the macroscopic nature of what it is engineering, organic, social, linguistic, etc. elements, all tossed into the same pot to stew. The only unities, multiplicities, that functionalism must know are the desiring machines themselves and the configurations they form in all the sectors of a field of production, the total fact. A magical chain brings together plant life, pieces of organs, a shred of clothing, an image of daddy, formulas and words. We shall not ask what it means, but what kind of machine is assembled in this manner? What kind of flows and breaks in the flows in relation to other breaks and other flows? The, the lines in here that are really important is we're starting to get into the distinction between molecular and molar. I've, if you're new to the book, you're new to the reading, uh, it's been said a few times, you've probably heard me or other people here talk about it, the, the molar and the molecular, the way that we think about things. This paragraph is talking about if we get to the point where we think that there is meaning or that we have uh, the, the function uh, of the machine itself, we probably haven't gone far enough. Because the desiring machines, the organization of them is the machine. It's not that a single symbol might be it. It's that we have this large network of partial objects and other, other items. What machine assembles things in such a way is a better way to think about how the unconscious functions. 
what kind of flows and breaks in the flows in relation to other breaks and other flows. It's a great way to phrase it. Postgird says, I feel this is a silly question to ask at this point. No such thing. Why doesn't the BWO have organs? This passage in particular makes it feel like it can have organs, albeit not organs like we'd have them. Um, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the BWO doesn't have organs. Forget the organs. Organs are desiring machines. Desiring machines operate and do stuff. They, they have desire. They're not neutral. They're not, sell it. They're not on their own. They're, they're doing out. They're trying to make connections. They're trying to set it up. The, the body without organs is the element that things are recorded upon. It doesn't have uh, uh, desire itself. It doesn't have a goal or a thing. It just has sort of a, a, an essence, a shape, if you want to say, a, a setup. Um, the, the organs that it does have form that it talks about here, oh, Ben, Ben nails it, uh, in section in chapter one on the disjunctive synthesis, it does get into the meat of this. The BWO has organs that form on its surface, but it doesn't have its own organs or organization. It hates and resists being organized. Uh, and I think there is supposed to be a dash in there, even though I think, I think it's supposed to be clever and a good comment, it, like organized as well as organized literally, like having it set up where this is the way you're supposed to be. It doesn't, it resists both, I think, actually. Uh, like it, 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 it would no longer be the, the productive unconscious, the, 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 the thing over which the, the decoded flows can move naturally if it had its own like organization. It, it, it would itself be like entrapping certain flows and rejecting others but uh because it's like especially within sort of like the mechanism of like uh the disjunctive synthesis we see the arrival of this like uh paranoiac machine in relation to the body without organs as it resists the the things clinging to its surface so to speak it, it resists uh any form of permanent concrete organization that would ever uh and a process of becomings in something that it has come like it it, it it resists the uh like the 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 axiomatic finality of being organized with the creates the forces that's uh careless wording uh it it employs the forces of anti-production to that end glad you liked it post and uh there's no such thing as a question too late uh, literally, if you're not understanding a sentence or a concept, don't hesitate to ask. That's the point of why we do these readings every week. Uh, it, it makes us rethink what we're talking about. Uh, we had the discussion, JK asked at the very opening, uh, something that now we're going to be having a huge discussion on, whether or not uh, BWO existed prior or how it functions prior to capital. There's like a gigantic conversation to be having with a bunch of this. So don't hesitate to ask questions for anything. It's a whole point of the project, as we might say. Uh, I will continue. Uh, analyzing the symbolism of the forked branch among the Ndimbu, Victor Turner shows that the names given to them form a part of a chain that mobilizes the species and the properties of the trees from which the branches are taken, as well as the names of these species in turn and the technical procedures with which they are treated. Selections are made from signifying chains no less than from material flows. The exegetical meaning, what is said about the thing, is only one element among others, and is less important than the operative use. 
what is done with the thing, or the positional functioning, the relationship with other things in one and the same complex, according to which the symbol is never in a one-to-one -one relationship with what it means, but always has a multiplicity of reference, being always multivocal and polysemous. Analyzing the magical object Buti, among the Kukuya of the Congo, Pierre Benoff shows how it is inseparable from the practical syntheses that produce, record, and consume it, the partial and nonspecific connection that combines fragments from the body of the subject with those of an animal, the inclusive disjunction that inscribes the object in the body of the subject and transforms the latter into man-animal, the residual conjunction that causes the residue to submit to a long voyage before burying or immersing it. If present-day ethnologists are again evincing a lively interest in the hypothetical concept of the fetish, this is unquestionably due to the influence of psychoanalysis. Uh, is, there, is there a paragraph break on this page? Is that just my version? That... But it would seem that psychoanalysis offers them just as many reasons for doubting the notion as it offers for attracting their interest. For psychoanalysis has never said phallus oedipus castration more often than apropos of the fetish. Well, for his part, the ethnologist senses that there is a problem of political power and economic and religious force inseparable from the fetish, even when its use is individual and private. Hair, for example, the rituals of hair cutting and coiffure. It is, is there any interest in referring these rituals to the phallus's entry as signifying the separate thing and in everywhere re-encountering the father as the symbolic representative of the separation? Wouldn't this be tantamount to remaining at the level of what it means? The ethnologist finds himself before a flow of hair, with the breaks in such a flow, and with what passes from one state into another through the break. As Leach says, hair as a partial object, or as a separable part of the body, does not represent an aggressive or separate phallus. Hair is a thing in its own right, a material part in an aggressing apparatus, in a separating machine. Once again, it is not a question of knowing if the essence of a ritual is sexual, or if it is necessary to take into account political, economic, and religious dimensions that would go beyond sexuality. So long as the problem is put in this manner, so long as a choice is imposed between libido and Newman, the misunderstanding between ethnologists and psychoanalysts can only be aggravated, just as it continues to grow beneath, between Hellenists and the psychoanalysts apropos of Oedipus. Oedipus, the club-footed despot, who clearly invokes an entire political history that brings, brings into conflict the despotic machine and the old primitive territorial machine, whence derive both the negation and the persistence of autochthony, brought into clear relief by Levi Strauss. But this is not enough to desexualize the drama. On the contrary, in reality, it is a question of knowing how one conceives of sexuality and libidinal investment. Must they be referred to an event or to something that is felt, which remains familial and intimate in spite of everything, an intimate Oedipal feeling even when it is interpreted structurally on behalf of the pure signifier? Or rather, is it necessary to open sexuality and libidinal investment onto the determinations of a socio-historical field, where the economic, political, and the religious are things that are invested by the libido for themselves, not the derivatives of a daddy-mommy.
In the first instance, one studies large molar aggregates, large social machines, the economic, the political, etc. And this entails searching for what they mean by applying them to an abstract familial whole that is thought to contain the secret of the libido. In this way, one remains in the framework of representation. Oh, there's so much here. That was a lot. I hate when they do three-page paragraphs. This may be the part where we all stop, stretch, stand up. I am one paragraph away from the end day of this. So we are we are we're doing this today. I'm not I'm not spending another week on this section. I want to get to territorial representation and push through this because uh, last time 3.4 we did five sessions on and I'm I have no interest in doing that again. None. So let's do our best. Um Oh God. I'll pose one for discussion's sake. Um what do you guys make I thought this was one of the most fascinating lines. Um, what do you guys make of the sentence? So long as the problem is put in this manner, so long as a choice is imposed between libido and Newman, the misunderstanding between ethnologists and psychoanalysts can only be aggravated. Just as it continues to grow between Hellenists and psychoanalysts, apropos of Oedipus. That's uh, page 182. Let's, so what is the difference between Newman and voluptus. It's Newman and voluptus and libido with three. What is the underlying difference between Newman and libido? I'll ask that because I think that's the part that really will help understand this. Yeah, that would be desire in the first synthesis versus the second. So libidinal desire would be um, the first synthesis, right? So connections and disconnections and all. Whereas Newman synthesis. is recording. Mm -hmm. And distribution. Yes, uh, we might say uh, uh, meaning, meaning production. Yeah, especially as function, 100% there. Whereas libido is uh, not a, st a step below that sounds wrong, but uh, it, there's, no, there's no goal of libido. Libido isn't attached to a thing or a representation or any elements that uh, Newman would be. Newman is creating those, so essentially generating symbology, generating meaning, and generating these elements. So to me, the point he's that they're driving here with the line, uh, the problem put in this manner, the choice imposed between libido and Newman, you have a choice. Is it that this is the base underlying reality of what a person wants, or that this is representations that a person's driving at? The misunderstanding between these gets put. And Oedipus, the club-footed despot, who, in, who clearly invokes an entire political history that brings into conflict the despotic machine and the old primitive territorial, like all of this history, all this stuff, like this isn't, this doesn't desexualize, this doesn't remove libido, desexualize the drama, uh, remove connecting, disconnecting. Uh, this doesn't, you know, put us in a good place. And the contrary, in reality, it is a question of knowing how one conceives of sexuality and libidinal investment. And then they go on, to me, they go on to talk through essentially how we are staying within Newman. We're staying within representation. We're not talking about, uh, like we're forcing people to choose one or the other rather than seeing how they're connected or how they produce each other. Yeah, I think you're spot on, but it's, it's obviously it's a false choice, right? Because you can't have one without the other. And so you can't have production without distribution, distribution without production. 
And so I think you're right, there's an interrelationship. And it, it's interesting that if we walk that back to look at um, what they're referring to, right? So libido then would be, um, is the ritual sexual, right? So is production here sexual? Is it libidinal, right, for synthesis? Or if it is necessary to take into account political, economic, and religious, or religious dimensions, that would go beyond sexuality. So there in, in terms of Newman, it's interesting because where we're getting social, uh, excuse me, political, economic, social, religious, and, and other dimensions is in relation to distribution, which I think is kind of interesting too. Yeah, and it's a this is a critique of the psychoanalytic concept of going back through history and saying, oh, I, I, we're basically, we only care about what is the meaning, not what it produces, not what is produced, but literally what is the meaning, which means no matter what you do, you can drive through and have these discussions, but this entails searching for what they mean, applying them to abstract familial whole that is thought to contain the secret of the libido, but you're still staying within the framework of representation. You're still dealing with large full bodies and uh, I'm going to try not to bring logic of sense into this because uh, like it's all I can think about now when we're talking about representation is his entire discourse on representation and how sense operates. But like this is a condemnation of that alongside watery fully. Um, I want to dive to the next part because the next is the sort of reverse push. And I want to just finish that real quick. Um, Bef before you do, Remke asks a question. Um, when Deleuze and Guadri write, Quote, for psychoanalysis has never said malice said of his castration more often than apropos of the fetish, end quote. Are they saying this sarcastically? I mean, it depends what you mean by sarcastically. Are they, are they saying it with a French wry humor that's kind of like a smile out of the side of their mouths? Like that's how I, for psychoanalysis has never said phallus Oedipus castration more often than apropos of the fetish. Well, for his part, the ethnologist senses that there is a problem. It's uh, that's the like, <laughs> and they do that a lot. It's hard to read. It's a fair question. I, is anyone disagree with that? Because that's how I read it, but maybe not. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think you're right that there's a as usual, right? There's a black humor there, or you know, there's losing water in there are, are often noted for the jokes in this book. So yeah, I think there is something of a, a prodding there for sure. But yeah, I mean, I think they're also being quite direct when they say that. Because they go on to talk about how even hair is a phallus, right? I mean, it's when they call it a, a fetish tied into the three plus one, right? Or the phallus and Oedipus, yeah? Which ultimately leads to castration in terms of psychic paralogism. I, yeah, I mean, they, they definitely mean that too. But I agree with you, they're being quite down quite humorous about it too yeah that's why sarcastic may not be the right word because i think they do mean it but i think they mean it in a dickish way <laughs> i don't know how else to put it um it, they're making fun of it too but yeah you know in the same way like when young makes fun of freud for oh, who would um you know who would pass up a younger woman for their mother right i mean there's a point to be made there but it's also a point about uh the use of a, a joke. 
Yeah, the tone, they do this a lot, a little bit of a jab, but it, they, they do mean it, I think, but it's a jab for sure. I'm going to read the last uh, paragraph and then we will open it up for discussion and we'll do another 10 minutes after that, just if anyone has anything. In the second instance, one goes beyond these large aggregates, including the family, toward the molecular elements that form the parts and wheels of desiring machines. One searches for the way in which these machines function, or how they invest and underdetermine the social machines that they constitute on a large scale. One then reaches the regions of a productive, molecular, micrological, or microphysical unconscious that no longer means or represents anything. Sexuality is no longer regarded as a specific energy that unites persons derived from the large aggregates, but as the molecular energy that places molecules' partial objects, libido, in connection. It organizes inclusive disjunction on the giant molecule of the body without organs, human, and that distributes states of beings and becoming according to domains of presence or zones of intensity, voluptus. For desiring machines, are precisely that, the microphysics of the unconscious, the elements of the micro-unconscious, but as such, they never exist independently of the historical molar aggregates of the macroscopic solar formations that they constitute statistically. In this sense, there is only desire and the social, beneath the conscious investments of economic, political, religious, etc. formations. There are unconscious sexual investments, micro-investments, that attest to the way in which desire is present in the social field and joins this field to itself as the statistically determined domain that is bound to it. Desiring machines function within social machines as though they maintained their own regime in the molar aggregates that they form at the level of large numbers. Symbols and fetishes are manifestations of desiring machines. Sexuality is by no means a molar determination that is representable in the familial whole. It is the molecular determination functioning within social and secondarily familial aggregates that trace desire's field of presence and its field of production. An entire non-Oedipal unconscious that will only produce Oedipus as one of its secondary statistical formations, complexes, at the end of a history bringing into play the destiny of social machines, their regime compared to that of desiring machines. Oh, there's so much. Um, but I think actually it's a fairly clear paragraph as far as, as, far as Anti-Oedipus goes. It's a fairly clear paragraph um, that is, it's driving through and, and helping us break down and look through what they're talking about where they say we're not staying in the framework of representation, we're going down to the partial objects, as we've talked about before, to the micro side. This is where the unconscious is developed. The machines, the desiring machines function in all of this. We need to be dealing with that and talking through those things, uh, these statistical formations, as, as they keep putting it. Um, it's, it's really a crisp way of saying, and they put it here, an entire non-Oedipal unconscious that will only produce Oedipus as one of its secondary statistical formations at the end of a history bringing into play the destiny of social machines, their regime compared to that of desiring machines. Complex, bigger thing said there, but it's uh, really solid and I think pretty, pretty clear. 
I dig that. We are uh, done with the section now. Uh, if anyone has any questions on this paragraph, then I'll open it up to just in general. Um, if anyone has anything at all, but we'll start with this paragraph. Do you guys understand it? The opening we talk through the molecular elements, and then we go through the three steps of the unconscious, the way that they function, the libidinal connection, numinal, voluptuous, how they operate, what they do, their energies as they transfer, all of that should, I think is pretty clear, but that's, again, I've, I've read this book a couple times now, so please uh, ask any questions you have at all. <laughs> this is worth reading. Uh, so I, I won't read, um, I don't want to embarrass the final author. Someone said, I was wondering if maybe this is a criticism of the Bolsheviks. <laughs> I mean, they have a, a few other places where they're pretty directly critical of the Bolsheviks. Um, I, I think this is a critique of a lot. Like, this is a critique of a lot. Um, it is... Uh, basically, the critique of staying at the place of representation, of not trying to figure out how do those representations get created? How do we attach to them? Why do we attach to them? Uh, the idea of what things mean or how things should mean, but instead talking about what is production? How does production work and why are we not something that is also produced? Um, these questions are throughout this book. I mean, all of both of their works in general. But this specific section very much is about getting beyond these aggregates, these ideas, these concepts of mommy, daddy, and things like that and saying, cool, we've got that. That's good. Cool. It's, these are the symbols. You're playing in representation. Now, tell me what makes those up. What is the thing that actually is the set of coordinates that create that representation and the machine that that is? Daddy, for example. What is the network of things? They give the example a little bit earlier, but... He, Deleuze does it a great deal when they're discussing uh, Proust, for example, who does a just ridiculous connections between items and objects and all sorts of things that become very vivid, but are essentially this you know constellation of partial objects that somehow become representative of father or woman I love or whatever it may be. This is the thing that they're getting at is, is going beyond just, oh yeah, no, it's dad. Like, no, no, what are the things that make up the machine that is dad? And let's break those down and find those pieces and continue to break and break and break. Yeah, it's a very clear last paragraph. Does anyone have questions on here? Nope. Uh, Logan on YouTube. Uh, please, uh, I hope it's entertaining. Uh, join us on Discord anytime. You're more than welcome. Uh, glad we can be at least somewhat entertaining while you're doing something else for sure. But if you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask here as well. I'm going to give it a minute because uh, I don't mind sitting in awkward silence for another like two to three minutes. Oh my God, Jack, murder. I, I don't know what you're talking about. But it's, but complete kindness, it's exactly the amazing point that the, the worker will be completely subordinate to the party because it is his party. These, these representations, these drives, these things that people are invested in, no, there's, these are, I think he would even say that these are pre-conscious investments, not unconscious realities or drives. These are 
there's more happening underneath the surface of all of these things. And the representations are just that top layer. That's a good point about the pre-conscious because it, I mean, even the, to say that's, it's the his party, right? Like that does sound like we're moving into this. So that's what it was kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it does start to get kind of, um, you know, is Trotsky kind of misusing the third, um, this third synthesis there? The, I, I just, I have a picture of like a five-year-old, like in next, next to Trotsky going, and I helped. Like it's, like no, <laughs> just it's just for some reason the picture I have in my head like a Steakums commercial. And that that's that's how you know I'm an old person is that reference actually. I'd like to endorse a server-wide project to use uh, Steakums and other commercials to explain Trotsky. Nineteen eighties American commercials to explain Trotsky, I think, would be actually kind of pretty amazing um, but uh going to do a speak now or forever hold your peace on questions jk did we answer everything remka did uh, we get to anything boskert anything else i'm going to call you out specifically yeah that's um yeah getting there i'm still um mulling over <laughs> this uh uh, body without organs. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a potential. There's always a potential, right? But it's always a, a, yeah, deteriorized, uh, decoded potential. Yes. Oh, there is so much I want to say back, but I. Um, we have a recording, and I will find it and link you to it. I'll at you in this chat, um, where we did uh, two and a half hours describing what the BWO was. Do you remember this, Jack and Ben? And Ken was there too. Yeah. Um, I remember nothing past yesterday. Yeah, I'm pretty much that was that was long. This was in November. And uh, I will link that to you, uh, JK, and you can hear us attempt our best to try to describe this because this is not easy. And my rule was even that we can't go with uh, anything from a thousand plateaus, which I've now passed beyond that because I was trying to keep it on the first book when we were there. Um, it's, it's a lot and it's complex. It's deeply complex. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll link that to you. It's a good one. Thank you. I'll, I'll, um, I'll look into it. Thank you. Brooks, what is this text you have up? The Living Glottaries Anti Oedipus. Um, which one? Where it says forms of uh, surplus value encoding. Oh, uh, I have, this is Holland's introduction. Oh, cool. Thanks. How do you see that? What is, what is streaming? I don't know. It's just switching sometimes. Well, that's wonderful and broken. Uh, yeah, so uh, Eugene Holland's uh, take on anti-Oedipus, I've really found to be helpful, and I reference it a lot when we're having sort of moments like this where I'm not totally confident in some of the things I'm being asked and kind of going back and going through it. So I, I adore Holland. I've actually written him a couple times and told him so. He's very kind. A very, very kind man. But, um... um 
So that's, that's all that. I can post the PDF. It's somewhere in here as well. But I think with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out today. Uh, thank all of you very much for coming. Uh, we will be doing this again next week as we move into uh, 3.5, Territorial Representation. And uh, we start getting into some of these that are going to take a little bit longer to get through. Because they're not only very, very long, but there is a ton packed into it. It is very important to understand. Thank all of you for joining, and we will see you next time.